Hey, uh, why don't you guys go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians 5 this morning, the first uh, 17 verses in Ephesians 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the chair in front of you, underneath the chair. You can grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those home as our gift to you so you can be in God's word throughout the week. And, but for now, just go to, go to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, it, it was a few years ago that... Um, my, my middle daughter was skiing, and, and it was actually, listen, it was the day before we were leaving for a March break trip. We, we had an Airbnb booked in Florida, and, and, and we were ready to go. The, the car was packed. We just wanted to get one more day of skiing in. And, and, and so wanting to be sure that we made it on this planned vacation, Libby, my wife, gave me two very simple rules for the day. Don't let them do anything dumb and always ski with them. I broke both rules. <laughs> So, so I, I had skied on ahead of them and thought, oh, they're doing fine behind me. And, and so I get to the chair, if I'm waiting, and 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 I'm waiting. I'm like, oh, no, something's wrong. I have broken one of the rules, and I'm paying for it. And, and, and then, then my youngest comes skiing down the hill, and she, and, and, and she, says, she says, Dad, Dad, we, we were skiing off into the trees. Second rule broken, right? And, and, and someone cut Ellie off, and she hit a tree, and then they're bringing her down on that old sled thing, and, and long story short, we did not go to Florida that year, as Ellie was in a full-leg cast from here all the way down for way too long. And, and now imagine, though, she gets to the bottom of the hill, they, they, they bring her down on the snowmobile, she gets to the bottom of the hill, and the, the, the ski patrol just says, okay, why don't you just walk it off? Just get up and just walk. Like, do you not know how to walk? And, and imagine she gets up and her leg broken, she falls over in pain. And listen, just telling somebody with a broken leg to walk isn't great advice, right? You can't just say walk. You have to fix what's broken in order for them to be able to walk. And in Ephesians 5 here this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to call us three times to, to walk this way. Now, for those 80s kids in the room, I know your, your mind's going to run DMC, right? Aerosmith. <laughs> If it wasn't, it is now. I'm so sorry. Walk this. Okay, anyway, right? But, but we're not just told to walk a certain way. We're, we're given this, this picture. We're given the, the power we need, the place that we go to, to walk. Next week, we're going to unpack it even more because later in this chapter, we see that, that each of us, if you're a Christ follower, you have the Spirit of God in you. And so God says, be filled with the Spirit so you can walk this way. But for this morning, look at verse 1. It says, therefore, I'm going to stop right there. If you've been with us through this book of Ephesians, you're like, man, you stop at every therefore. And I don't know why that, that I mean, I got to unpack it every time it's there, that, that I figure the Holy Spirit puts it there because we need to be reminded of it over and over again. That therefore is so important because before we're told, hey, walk like this, walk in this way, we're not just being told with a broken leg, just go walk. The therefore coming before the commands that are about to come are talking about the previous chapters in the book of Ephesians. For the first three chapters, the Apostle Paul writing this letter to the church in Ephesus and to us under the influence of the Holy Spirit gives the deepest, one of the deepest explanations of the gospel recorded in the Bible. And he says, because of this gospel, because of the good news of who you are as a Christ follower, changed, walk like this. Because of the gospel that, that Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you could not live, died in your place, taking on your sin, rose again to conquer sin and death, we're now changed. Not just given outward religious instructions, but a whole new heart, a whole new identity all new motives, new purpose were changed from the inside out. And now the gospel makes us different people who want to follow Jesus in obedience. 
Your behavior changes because your heart has changed, because you've been made new, you've been made alive, you now act alive. I mean, think of it this way, that, that people who are living don't need to be commanded to breathe. I've never made a rule in my house for my girls to breathe, right? If you don't start breathing, you're going to be grounded, right? Like, you just don't, you don't need to do that. And, and so when you look at what's going on here, the gospel changes our heart, brings us new life. And you see the beauty and the worth of God and your, your appetite changes. So you desire God more than you desire your sin. You begin to love God and what's good and right and your walk changes. So look at verses one and two. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You're taking notes. Here's our first point this morning. How do we walk? We walk in love. We walk in love. It says our, our response to the good news of Christ is, is that we're now to imitate, act like, live like God, like our Father. And, and by imitating our Father, what do we look like? It says we walk in love. How? We walk in a love just like Christ loved us. We, we love like we've been loved. I mean, think about that for a minute. What if that was your standard for how you loved people? What if, that, what if Christ's love for you is your standard for how you relate to people in your life that you would love like Jesus loves? I mean, think about what that would mean practically. What would it look like if, if you saw your own, if I saw my own sinfulness first and the grace that's been poured out on me in Christ before I moved into somebody else's life? I mean, what would our friendships, what would your marriage, what would your relationship, what would our community look like if, if we regularly forgave each other like Christ forgave us? What would it look like if we didn't respond to people in the way they deserved, but instead, because we have a true gospel response, like, like, like we'd be living like we believe the gospel, that we love like Christ loved us. We walk in love. We walk in love. Now, we don't just walk in love because Christ loved us that way, but look at the other phrase there, that Jesus gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, so it says, why do we walk in love? Because the one we're ultimately loving is God. That when we love, it's this act of worship to him. And, and it can be hard. It can be so hard to love people who hate you. It can be hard to love people who don't respond in love. But then you read this verse and you realize, wait a minute, I'm actually loving because Jesus loved me. And because I love Jesus first. And, and you see the sacrifice of Christ's love, his, his body tore apart by Roman whips, his, his hands nailed as he was stretched wide on a cross, his, his side pierced by a spear, and, and he, he sinlessly bears the full wrath of God against our sin. And, and Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says he did all of that for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? The joy was his love for the redeemed. And so how do we respond then? If you're truly changed by Jesus, the, the cross is not just a past event. It's a present reality that, that you're changed. And so because of that, you love, you forgive, you serve, you give your time and your resources. You bring this love of Jesus to those around you. 
Now, verse 3, we can get all that and go, okay, that's hard, but I get it. Verse 3, he all of a sudden takes this, it seems like a very weird turn. Look at verse 3. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. We go from, hey, hey, live a life of love to all of a sudden, hey, and by the way, let me talk about sexual sin and covetousness. And well, it's actually not a weird term when you think about what's happening here. We're to be imitators of God. We're to act like our Father. And so to do that, we need to love what God loves. And as the text moves forward, you begin to see, wait a minute, God loves righteousness. God does righteousness because he loves righteousness. God, he, he does good because he is good. And as his children, we need to have the same heart as him that we would also love righteousness. And so in every situation, we need to ask ourselves this. How does God feel about this? What, what's God feel about this show that I'm watching? What, what's God feel about this joke I'm telling or laughing at? What's God think about this relationship that I'm in? What's, what's God think about this attitude that I have? What's God think about this activity that I have? And you're asking this question, does God love this? Look at verse seven. It says, therefore, do not become partners with them. With what? With, with, with the darkness he's, he's talking about here. We're gonna unpack this. For, for at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you're taking notes, here's our second point. We don't just walk in love, we also walk in light. We walk in light and Paul's calling us, walk in the light. And, and listen, we, we know it doesn't take much looking around to realize we live in a very dark world. We're surrounded by a very dark culture. And verse 10 says, you need, to, you need to discern that darkness. You need to look around and go, what's the Lord calling me to in the midst of all of this? And so what do we do? We, we take God's word and we, we use God's word as a light to shine into the darkness in our own lives. Every area. We're not called to just kind of blindly walk through the dark and stumble around. No, no. We, we don't trust that culture's getting it right. I mean, culture tells us all the time, no, no, this is right, this is good. That's not what I trust. I don't trust my heart either because I, I know that my heart is, is wicked, right? It, it's, it's got stuff that's gonna lead me not in the right way, so what do we do? We, we do this. We, we say, I wanna see what life looks like through this lens, through God's word. You go back to verse three again, what's it say? But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. What's proper for us? Another word there could be what's fitting. And he's saying, listen, sexual sin and covetousness is not fitting. It doesn't fit a Christian lifestyle. When you, when you look at it, it's, it's, if you look at a Christian, it, it, if a Christian is, is just embracing sexual sin and covetousness, it's like a fish riding a bicycle. Like that does not make sense. That's what he's saying. So let's talk about sex first. We need, we need the light of God's word as our guide in our culture. Now listen, culture is going to call you a lot of names when you say, this is my guide for sexuality. 
And you say, I love Jesus more than I love your ways of doing life and I'm, I'm gonna go with the unshakable truth of God's word rather than the shifting, changing sands of what culture's gonna say now or next year or 10 years from now. I'm not doing that. And listen, when you say that, when you stand up boldly, you will be labeled. So let's be biblical about the way we think about sex. So first thing to remember as we jump into this, remember this, God created sex. He's the creator. He's the designer. Sex was not our idea, all right? It's not like, like God created Adam and Eve, and then he, he kind of took his eyes off for a minute. And was like, Whoa, what are you guys doing? No, no, he made that. He created it, right? Designed the whole thing. It says in Genesis that he created man and a woman, and, and when they come together in this marriage, that, that they become one flesh. And, and yeah, it's a physical picture of that, right? But there's also this, this mysterious soul-joining level that happens in sex. and so, so one way that our world walks in darkness is they say sex is just physical. Sex is sex. Love is love. It doesn't matter. God's word said it's deeper than that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, it says this, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for as it is written, two become one flesh. So scripture takes what would be the cheapest form of sex available and says even in that, there's this joining that's happening. What it's saying is this, and here's the thing, when you read modern psychology, they're saying this now too. Isn't that great? They're catching up with God's word that sex is more than just biology, that there's this deep thing going on. There's a soul level unity happening. Why? Why? Because there's a purpose and a design to it. It's for a man and a woman in marriage to be unified as one. And let's be clear, there's nowhere in Scripture at all of God's sanctioned expression of sexuality anywhere else than in that context of a man and a woman in the context of marriage. So sex is about this, this oneness, that, that you become one physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, and, and, and this idea of marriage, that, and to use sex outside of marriage actually makes it a very selfish act where you're saying, no, 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 we're joined, we're one, but, but you're actually not, you're, you're not in this committed covenant of marriage. You see, in marriage, it is this, this, sex is this powerful gift from God to unite us and in, the, in the right context. It's this wonderful blessing, but out of that context, Satan twists it to become selfish, destructive, I've heard it said this way, if you, if you think about, about sex, and, and you, if I ask you the question, do, do you want fire in your house? Now, the right answer would probably be, well, it depends. Where do you mean? Do you mean in my fireplace? Because yes, that heats my house. It's really nice looking. It's great. But do you mean fire on my couch? Not so much, right? I mean, sex is this powerful thing used in the proper way, but you look around in our culture, and it is one big couch fire right now. And, and if you walk in this light where you say, this is what God's word says, this is how I'm going to live, you're going to be labeled by our culture, you're going to be labeled a prude, a killjoy, you're behind the times. Now, Paul here, it's interesting, he talks about sexual immorality and he talks about covetousness, which is interesting because in the early church, one way that the church in the, in, in, in the first century, the way they really stood out in their culture was that first century culture would say this, keep your money for yourself, be greedy with your money, but give your sexuality to everybody. 
and Christianity comes along and says, no, 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 be stingy with your sex. That's, that's for you and your spouse. Be generous with your money. And the first century culture couldn't get it. Like, we don't get these guys. We can't understand that. Ephesus was, was that way. We look around in our culture and think, man, it's a messed up culture. You, you got to study what was going on in Ephesus at the time where, where the culture's religion was sex. They worshiped with sex. The, the temple of Artemis was filled with temple prostitutes. It was the religion of their day. And I would say this, not much different than our culture today, right? Where sex is everywhere. They're trying to teach sex ed younger and younger and younger into the schools. Why? Why? Because Satan hasn't changed his strategy very much. He's like, I'm going to ruin this one good gift from the Lord. Satan also hasn't changed his strategy very much because, you know, in the first century, the church was blamed for everything. What's going on right now? Church is so hateful because they don't follow our standard of rules, whether you are or you aren't. I would say our culture is pretty similar to Ephesus in that sex is the God of our day. We have a month dedicated just to sex. And so as a Christian, listen, you're going to stand out as light in a very dark world. In fact, just this past week, Pastor Marshall, our youth family ministries pastor, him and I sat down with a teacher whose kids go to our youth and she wanted to meet with us um, because she was kind of asking some questions about what are you actually teaching in this church to my kids? In fact, in fact, it was just days before that that Marshall was called into the principal's office at HHS. Now, if you know Marshall, it wasn't his first time in a principal's office for sure, right? So I don't think he was fearful going in there. He's like, I know how to do this. But they, he's, he's getting called a why, why? They were both asking questions about particularly, hey, what do you guys teach about LGBTQ? What they, wanted, what they wanted to say was this, you guys preach hate. And then after talking with us, they both left kind of scratching their heads. Why? Because we're not going to bend on the light of what God's word says about sex and sexuality, but we're also not going to bend. We're going to be clear and say, we're going to stay in those boundaries here about those things, but we're also going to stay in what God calls us to live like Jesus. You clap, right? Amen. So he, here's the cool part of Marshall's meeting with the principal. So he's meeting with the principal, and he lays out what God's word says. And he says this. He goes, you know, we're, we're to walk like Jesus walks. So he says, we, we don't, like it says in these verses, we don't partake in darkness. We're not going to celebrate what you guys celebrate. Instead, we're going to walk as children of the light. But then he says this, we're going to display, what's it say here? The fruit of that light, right? All that's good and true and right. And, and so Marshall gives the gospel to the, to the principal and says, this is what we're called to live out. We're called to live out peace and joy and grace and truth and patience and kindness and love. He goes, we're called to live like Jesus. So that's what I tell the students. And the principal was, was upset that we would, we would be teaching that, that same-sex attraction acted out on would be a sin. That, that we would say that God made us male and female, so we're not going to celebrate what you guys celebrate. But she saw that there's this massive compassion and love. We're not going to bend on truth, but we're also not going to bend on being loving, generous people. And she said this. She said, yeah, after the conversation's wrapping up, she goes, you know what? The Harvest students in our school really are that way. And she lists off the characteristics, which were just, you can clap for that, amen. And she lists off, and Marshall basically, he just went through the fruit of the Spirit. He goes, this is what we tell our students. He says, I don't care what you do in school, but this is what you're going to be like. This is what Christ calls us to. And she goes, I can see that in the students. Listen, that's walking in the light. Pray for our students. It's a hard go. 
pray for them. I, I hope this, though. I hope that our students encourage you because you have a hard way to walk as well, right? To walk in the same way as light. I mean, God's serious about this. What does he say in verse 3? He says, it shouldn't even be named among you. Like, not even a, not even a hint of sexual immorality. Now, what's that mean? It means, it means if we're walking in the light, we're not even going to flirt with it. I'm talking about all of it. So, so, so students that always ask that question, how far is too far? How many bases are there and how far can I run those bases, right? right? Here's the thing. It's, it's actually, it's, it, when, you're, when you're listening to what, what God says here, he says not even a hint of it. So that question, I think, is even the wrong question. How close can I get to impurity before I fall off the cliff? Well, instead, what Scripture is saying this, pursue righteousness. Listen, if you're getting close to marriage, yeah, for sure, there's going to be more physical displays of affection, right? But listen, listen, don't light a rocket you don't intend to launch, right? <laughs> All right, let me make you a little more uncomfortable here. <laughs> Not even a hint. Here's what it means. Here's what it means. You ready? We don't fill our minds with impurity and call it entertainment. Like, 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 what would you be watching right now that you'd be excusing? What, what movies, what videos, what, what TV series? I mean, I don't have time this morning to unpack the destructiveness of pornography. I mean, for years, Christians were called re- regressive, and, and man, you guys just need to get with the times. You need to lighten up, and now, now what's it seem? It seems that even secular social scientists and psychologists are saying, wait a minute, Th- this thing that Christians have known, that God's word has been saying for ages, that pornography is destructive. The text here says, don't be partakers. Don't participate. Have no fellowship with sexual immorality. Don't even let it be named among you. I mean, it's like zero tolerance, zero tolerance. Don't, pre- don't pretend, don't partake, don't kind of sort of sampling, kind of just. It is a hard word. <laughs> and Paul says this, what's he say? He said, instead, let there be thanksgiving, verse four says. And I'd say this, one way to battle sexual temptation is gratitude. Where you say, God, thank you for these boundaries because they're good. You want my good. You want my flourishing. Thank you for these. These are good because the lie that Satan will get you is that they're not good. Be thankful. Now, Paul doesn't just go after the, the big sins. I mean, he hits on what we would call in church maybe the acceptable sins as well. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. What's your jokes look like? What do you joke about? Do you, do you joke about sin? I mean, I catch myself doing that. And our language, our behavior shouldn't be like that of people who are enslaved to immorality, people who are just saturated in this self-serving desire. No, he says there shouldn't even be a hint of that in us. Instead, we should be like people who rejoice in, who love God. And he doesn't just stop at sexual immorality, though. What's he say? Or covetousness. What does that mean? That, that means we desire something so intently, we say, I have to have this for there to be life. I can't imagine not having that. I wouldn't be happy if I didn't have that. And in verse 5, he just sums it up. He says, it's called idolatry. Where you look to money, to stuff, to people, to reputation, to your work, and saying, these are going to bring me life. And, and, and that kind of thing, it's part of the, that's not proper. That doesn't fit for Christ followers. 
Now, why would covetousness not fit? Imagine it this way. Imagine me telling my wife how awesome another woman is. I said, man, it'd be amazing to be married to her. Or, or, or we pass by a woman and I just say, man, she is beautiful. It's not proper. It's not fitting for a husband to say that to his wife. It, it insults her. Listen, in the same way, when we covet, we're saying, God, I wish I had another God. That's idolatry. The scripture this morning is saying, church, if your heart is craving the horizontal, saying, you don't know Jesus then. Look at verse five. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, notice how balanced the Bible is. I love this. Like, Paul starts talking about sexual immorality, and, like, conservatives are like, yeah. And then he talks about greed, and liberals are like, yeah. I just love it. Like, the Bible offends everybody equally, right? It's so good. So good. And so I would say this. Show me a Christian who's actively fighting against impurity, sexual impurity, and also actively fighting against covetousness, and I'll show you a genuine believer, not just someone who's a product of the Christian culture they were raised in. And scripture is so clear and it's so uncomfortable. I, don't, I mean, even to say it, that if you're practicing covetousness, if you're practicing sexual sin, if that's a pattern of your life, you're not living like a child of God. Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now he's not saying to literally cut off your hand or pluck out your eye, but he says this, it's better to lose that than to lose your soul. So with hyperbole, he's saying, listen, you need to take drastic measures if that's the way you're living your life. If you're living in unconfessed, unchanged patterns of sin, whether it's sexual sin or covetousness, Jesus says, take care of it or what? You'll lose your soul. It shows that you don't, it says here, you don't have inheritance in the kingdom. And, and that's hard to hear. It's hard for me to preach. But, but look, at, look, look at the next few verses. Verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of, a, of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. He says, don't listen to empty words. Because as a pastor, I can get up here and I can preach empty words and we can fill the church. Empty words that say, hey, don't worry about sin. It's all good. Jesus doesn't care. And listen, grace, grace is amazing. And I'm gonna preach grace Grace, grace, every Sunday I get up here to talk to you guys. I'm gonna talk about grace. I'm gonna celebrate grace. I'm gonna preach it loud and clear. But if you're okay with patterns of sin in your life and it doesn't bother you, listen, you actually don't understand grace. Again, the cross was not just a past event that happened. It's not just something that in the future we'll, we'll see the result of. No, 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 no. The cross is something we take up daily where Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself. Where we say daily, Jesus, you're my king. You're my Lord. Your word is the way I follow. Let's not play games with God. Let's not pick and choose. Well, I'll take this part of his word, but this part is uncomfortable. Let's not be apathetic. Let's not be casual about sin. Let's not be deceived into thinking that we're Christ followers when we're not. Now, listen, listen. I'm not talking about those of you maybe in here that you're, you're, generally, you're genuinely struggling with sin but it's those who claim to know Christ and your life doesn't look any different than the world. 
you won't give it up, whether it be a relationship, whether it be a sin or a habit or a lifestyle or a thought pattern. And you think, I've come to God, but really you've never taken this part seriously. Look at verse 11. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for... Let me stop there. It says this, that we, we, we want to live in a way that doesn't embrace the unfruitful works of darkness. What does that mean? Things that are futile. I mean, can you see that in our world that the world is going away where, where you're just looking and go, man, it's just futile. It's not leading. It's not doing anything. And yet the culture screams out, no, no, we're helping. We're helping. And what do we see? I just read some stats. Nearly 60% of teen girls right now say they feel persistent sadness or hopelessness. Nearly 60%. 30% of teen girls have seriously considered suicide. The rates of rape are staggering. I mean, it should cause our hearts to hurt, to to have compassion, to say, we need to bring this light. We need to expose the darkness with light. We need to live in a way that, that the world can see the light of God, even in the midst of the darkness. And what does that mean? It's like this. In the darkness, we you can't see the sun. But who are we? We're to reflect Jesus. So, so we're like the moon. That in the darkness, although you can't see the sun, you can see the sun reflected in the moon. And so we're to live that kind of light in the darkness, reflecting Jesus. So quickly, it means a couple of things. If we're to do that, we've got to be up close to those in darkness. You can't read a passage like this and say, oh, okay, so we're all just going to hide out, huddle up, and wait for Jesus to come back. You can't shine the light in the darkness if, if you're hiding your light. So we need to be in these places. But secondly, what, do, what does it mean? It means we shine Jesus. That's what we're shining. To, to expose the darkness isn't us railing on everyone, isn't railing on everything in culture. It's, it's, not going at, it's not being more angry at the world than you are at the evil one behind the darkness. So how do we reflect Jesus? Let me ask you this. Do people see you as somebody with deep, and lasting hope. To expose the darkness is to live in a way that the light you live begs a question. 1 Peter 3.15 would say it this way, that you're living in a way that people would say, why do you have so much hope? That those around you would ask, those who are caught in darkness would, would, would ask. I mean, you just look at Jesus' life. He just seemed to be attracting those who are so broken and sinful, but looking for hope. So in everything you do this week, put Jesus on display. Put him on display in your generosity. Put him on display in your love. Put him on display in your words, in your honesty, in your worship, in your attitude. Because there's the old saying, it goes like this, that you're the only Jesus that some will ever see. You're the only Bible that some may ever read. So that's the question for us. What kind of reflection am I giving about the nature and the beauty of God? Listen, Harvest, we are are the ultimate apologetic for the gospel in a very dark and skeptical world. We have to show the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. So let's look for some way to do that this week. So quickly, as the worship team comes up, here's our last point. We want to walk in wisdom. Look at verse 14. It says, For anything that becomes visible is light. 
Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as the unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Listen, to to walk out this stuff is not easy. I mean, Paul says you need to wake up. To to live like this takes effort. Like, let's stop hitting the snooze button on this because the world is asleep in darkness. So let's, as a church, as Christ for us, let's shine differently. Let's be wise. Let's make the best use of our time, it says. Why? Because there's a redeeming that we're being called to, to to redeem our time, to, to see the world change. Why? Because the days are evil. The culture we live in is evil. It was evil in the time this was first written. So let me ask you this. What's it going to look like this week for you to live in a very intentional way that's redeeming, that's making new, that's bringing light and life? I mean, Harvest, we are on a rescue mission. I mean, if you know that the people around you are dying without Christ, what, what should you be doing with your time? Let's get practical. Here's a list of things I was just thinking through. What would it look like? How would you be a light in a dark world? How would you imitate God? How would you bring hope, the hope of Jesus in your generosity this week? What's that going to look like? In your patience. In your grace or forgiveness. What would it look like in what you talk about, what you joke about? What you watch? What you do with your free time? And then ask this this week, as you're going about your week, do I demonstrate the glory of Jesus to a world in these areas? And listen, if you're struggling in some sinful patterns, as a Christ follower, remember where we began. It starts with remembering who you are. As a child of God, you have a new heart with new motives, new strength. Remember this truth. Come back next Sunday because we're going to unpack a second way we walk out these things. When we're wrestling with sin, we're filled with the Spirit of God. But until then, would you stand with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the truth of your word. I thank you that there's hope there, Lord. That in a world that's dark, we don't have to be the hopeless ones. We don't have to be the ones who are fearful and and running around wondering what's going to happen, Lord. But instead, we can live as those who know that you're in charge. God, may we never waver from the truth of your word because we know there that there's life. There's hope. God, thank you for what our students are doing in the high school, just loving people well, living out the gospel, showing Jesus. God, I pray we would be doing the same, God. Thank you for the men and women in this room that in their workplaces, in their families, they're looking to say, Lord, how do I live like light this week? So God, protect us, send us out into the darkness, and let us shine the light of the gospel to everywhere we go, that we would see new life. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.